you are either on the side of mob rule or you are on the side of law and order. And I am on the side of mob rule. Tomorrow I will be casting my ballot for Donald J. Trump. Amen. Nicely put. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Romaniacs is no more. We've got a new name, new segments and some brilliant new graphics from Mark Taylor with the same great panellists and guests. We're recording this late Wednesday afternoon, the day after the long night before. It's also the last day before lockdown too. So forgive us if we're a little fragile. I'm Dorian Litsky. We'll be diving into the American election very soon. But first, let's meet the panel. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. So we did an emergency podcast last week uh, about the EHRC's report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Corbyn is still suspended. The left is still furiously signing open letters and muttering about a new socialist party. Where are we now? Have there been any uh, any any developments on that front? Not really. Um, I mean, I think we're mostly complaining uh, complaining that Bernie would have walked it if he'd only been allowed to run. And look at the problems Biden is having because he's such a pathetic centrist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the focus has shifted a bit. But this is look. This is not a row that resonates beyond Twitter. It is a small number of people who are not key to Starmer's chances of winning the next election. I mean, the best Johnson could do at PMQs today was to say that Tony Blair would never have sat in a shadow cabinet with Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, that's not a slur that's going to cut through to to long Corbynites, as I now think of them. It's just, I I think that the issue has effectively been put to bed by Starmer, at least for the near, and I would say medium term as well. Millie Rahman is a writer, broadcaster and campaigns manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, everyone. So over the weekend, the BBC published a rum story about a wedding DJ organising a flotilla of boats to patrol the Kent coast in search of migrant dinghies. Uh, The article made the group sound like a fun gang of rogues evoking the Dunkirk spirit rather than a posse of dangerous far-right weirdos. It's not the first time the BBC has got into trouble over the antics of a silver-haired DJ. What did you make (laughs) of... uh, What did you make of this story? Uh, I I was honestly horrified by the fact that story made it through editorial standards and that it glorified a bunch of people who are, for all intents and purposes, vigilantes, and they've been associated with some pretty disgusting behaviour. You know, you just a quick look at their social media accounts and they're clearly anti-migrant scaremongers. You know, they have a clear political agenda that is dangerous and and puts people's lives at risk. Um, What was really irritating, though, is that I think... The majority of people in Kent are genuinely worried that someone might die making these journeys and want those journeys to end for that reason. You know, they could have covered that story from the perspective of people who care about the safety of others. So I think it's pretty outrageous from the BBC, if I'm that's being really polite, um, that we have put in a complaint about it because it was unacceptable. And there's a weird sort of quirkiness to like, as if the important thing was that he was a former wedding DJ, which is like sort of saying that, you know, Adolf Hitler was a former painter who started an exciting new political party. Yeah, I mean, I honestly couldn't believe the way that it had been covered. It was almost like the journalist thought that they were just a funny bunch of guys who were doing something for the right reason, rather than looking at their actual intentions and doing proper research on who they are and and what they've been up to in the last few years. 
Our guest this week is a veteran of the BBC who visited 48 out of 50 US states as a North America correspondent. He stood for Change UK, RIP, in the European elections last year and actually joined us on People's Vote marches up and down Whitehall. He last joined us when we were still Romaniacs and he'd just released his book, Brexit Without the Bullshit. It's Gavin Esler. Hello, Gavin. Hello. So which were the two unlucky Eslerless states? Was it, I would, I would say Alaska and Hawaii because they're so very far away, but I could be wrong. Dorian, you you so underestimate my ambition to have a good time. <laughs> totally, totally wrong. I bent, went to Alaska many, many times, looked at grizzly bears and salmon and went right down the Aleutian chain almost to Russia. Uh, so, nope. And Hawaii, I, I, I've been camping on Hawaiian beaches. The, the, the two states that I failed to get to, one was Wisconsin, I don't know why I never got there. And the other was North Dakota. I do know why I never got there. So um, uh, because it's cold, usually. The BBC has issued new rules for its employees to, quote, avoid virtue signalling, which includes the use of emojis and the instruction they can attend pride marches as long as it's non-politicised participation. Is this Tim Davey running scared from the the conservative culture warriors as he takes on the job and and sort of uh, overreacting? I, I I thought this was a very strange statement. I mean, I think people in the BBC should be uh, should report the facts and be balanced in having a balanced view of opinions. But if you're against, I, I hate the words virtue signaling, snowflake, woke, and all those other kind of value loaded terms which are used to denigrate uh, people. Well, what are we in favour of? Vice signalling is that, is that the thing we should be be in favour of? Is that okay? So, uh, I don't really know what's what's going on here. Does it apply to David Attenborough, who takes a very straightforward view on climate change that it's real and it's a bad thing and we should do something about it? Well, it's an odd phrase because obviously it particularly talks about uh, you know sort of progressive causes. So, someone like Andrew Neil was very politically outspoken uh, on Twitter while he was working for the BBC. But you wouldn't call it virtue signalling. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what I wouldn't call anything virtue signalling <laughs> uh, ever. I think it's a, a completely idiotic phrase. If you if you say something uh, because you believe in it, that's absolutely fine. If you're working for the BBC, you've got to be very careful and not say I'm for Labour or the Conservatives or the Lib Dems or the SNP or whatever it is. Um, uh, 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 but are you not? Are you seriously supposed? Let, let me put it a different way. The BBC has had a great deal of difficulty with the balance issue over the years. And I remember having to interview various kinds of uninformed people about climate change with to balance very informed people about climate change. And that's a difficult question, which the BBC has not quite, in fact, broadcasters in general have not quite got their heads around yet. So it's a tricky area. But to, to denigrate some people for wanting to go you know, to a pride march, for example, uh, because that's virtue signaling seems to be very odd. Well, thankfully, there is no risk of a false balance on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Or any balance. (laughs) Or any balance at all. We'll be be signaling virtues left, right and centre. On this week's podcast, the American election has been tighter than most people expected. What does this say about the state of the nation, of populism and of election coverage? To paraphrase William Goldman, does anybody know anything? Plus, the clocks went back last week. Did you remember to reset the much faster one, which tells you when Nigel Farage is starting a new political party? He's taking time off of flogging gold and following Trump around like a xenophobic Grateful Dead fan to launch a new anti-mask, anti-lockdown party called Reform UK. 
If Farage says jump, will the Tories ask how high? And does the botched lockdown part due announcement give him a boost? So as we record on Wednesday afternoon, Biden has flipped Arizona and Nebraska's second congressional district and is ahead in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Georgia. This looks likely to give him an electoral college result of between 271 and 307 on top of the popular vote. And due to the biggest turnout since 1900, around 67 percent, he's already received more votes than any presidential candidate in history. Roz, it looks as if Trump will be a one-term president. Uh, it was a huge, uh, an orgy of democracy uh, in turnout terms. So why is the mood on, on, on the sort of, you know, the, the liberal, liberal left and the centre so deflated rather than celebratory? Well, it's been an awful few years, hasn't it? I mean, Trump, Brexit, we were just really hoping that something would turn the tide definitively and we would get a definitive result where Trump was clearly defeated and he would find it very difficult to start putting in train any kind of efforts to to reverse a narrow result. And so that is that is just a blow, I think. And there was a lot of hope, you know, last night and the polls we were seeing, the the, um, the uh, suggestion was that Biden could potentially have walked it. And that's turned out, of course, not to be the case. But I was today, I was, um, you know, because that's the way I roll, I was sitting on a behavioral science seminar with some on Zoom with some LSE colleagues, which was really fascinating. It was mostly about the pandemic. But they were one of the things that they were making very clear is it's really difficult to keep two different outcomes in your mind simultaneously and think that both might happen. Humans like to think and like to think this is going to happen. Okay, that's great. Or that is going to happen. I've got to resign myself to it. And so it's always going to be difficult for us to deal with the kind of uncertainty and the lack of a definitive result that we've seen now. Gavin, during the campaign, I saw what uh, Emily Tampkin for The New Statesman called uh, data versus dread. So the optimists had on their side these exceptionally steady polls, which, which barely anything seemed to, to affect them. You know, not debates, not scandals, not COVID deaths and second and third waves. Uh, and the pessimists just had a sort of a bad feeling. Um, they very rarely could offer sort of any, any evidence. But now the pessimists are partly right, at least. How do we cover and indeed follow elections from now on? Like, what, what is a reliable indicator if all of that data actually proved to be misleading to some extent? Well, I think this, I think I'd take one step back and say, look, what do we know about the United States? We know it's hugely divided. It's a hugely divided society. And we know that more than 70 million people, for example, have voted for Donald Trump this time. That's, that's what we know. Uh, and it's divided pretty much down the middle uh, with Biden, I think, you know, uh, as we speak, likely to win the presidency, I think, but do it narrowly. So we know that. The other thing we know, what do we know about Trump voters? Well, we know that Trump voters, by definition, don't like supposed elites, and they don't trust fake news and various other things. So if you are producing opinion polls and going around asking Trump voters who don't like some of the structures of your society, are they going to tell you the truth? Are they even going to spend any time with you? And I talked to uh, one of Britain's best-known pollsters, Peter Kellner, about this uh, a while ago. And one of the things he said is it's actually quite difficult sometimes to get everybody to respond to pollsters, much more difficult than when he started out in, the, in, in polling. And I suspect it's not that the, uh, 
that there was something false or stupid about the way in which polls are conducted. It is that the sort of the so-called shy Trump voters, the ones who won't speak, aren't shy. They're suspicious, and they probably wouldn't say. So I think those those sort of things are a problem. But it, my disappointment, unfortunately, is it doesn't look as if the Democrats are going to take the Senate, and I think that is a real problem if it is a Biden presidency for how he is able to govern because. If he wants to do anything about the Supreme Court, that goes through the Senate. If Britain wants a trade deal, that goes through the Senate. So there's lots and lots of questions that go beyond just whether Biden or Trump has actually won this election. And this idea of granting statehood to Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, does that also go through the Senate? Yeah, absolutely. And the House of Representatives, which the Democrats have controlled, um, voted in favour. And of course, if... Uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico were to get statehood, and I think D.C. would be quite likely to with the Democratic Senate, but that would be two more senators for the Democrats. And there's one other thing that strikes me as very interesting. Uh, a friend of mine, Danny, Danny Blanchflower, an academic, a British academic in the United States, has done a very interesting study, or he's he and another uh, academic have crunched the numbers on what is called extreme distress. What it means is, if you look back between, as they did from the 1990s to to now, extreme distress means that if you ask somebody in the past 30 days, how many days have been a bad day for you? If they say 30, that's extreme distress. And what we have seen since, or what they have found since 1993 to 2019, is that those Americans reporting that they are in extreme distress has gone up very markedly, particularly among white males without a college education. And that's your Trump voter. And whatever happens in terms of whatever you think of Trump or Biden or so on, if you're feeling that way, you may go towards self-harm, you may go towards opioid addiction, uh, alcoholism and and suicide, which is part of the, the findings. Or you may become so angry with the system that you see the kind of message from Donald Trump is still relevant to your lives. So I, th- I think there's a number of things going on under the surface in the United States, which haven't completely been reflected in some of the reporting of the United States. Trump made a sort of outrageous speech claiming that he'd won and that, um, you know, to continue to count votes was illegitimate. Because um, why would you count all the votes in an election? And he was actually criticised even by um, even by many prominent conservatives. But the people have been very worried for some time now, particularly after the um, appointment of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, that this would go to the court um, and votes would be thrown out, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, how likely is that? And on and, and what would it hinge? Well, it, it, it could hinge on a number of things, you know, uh, these are phony ballots, the ballot boxes have been stuffed and so on. But I, but I, I take a very different view of that comment from Trump. It was outrageous, but that's a loser's speech. That was a concession speech, actually. <laughs> Nobody who's just won a race is going to say, oh, uh, or won a football match is going to say, the referee was wrong to give us three goals. So anybody in a Democratic vote 
who is, thinks they're going to win isn't going to say what Trump said. So it could go to the Supreme Court. It could be all kinds of a, a mess. But I thought Pe- Mike Pence, vice president, was very interesting. He did not say anything along the lines of what Trump said, not even the vice president. He said, well, uh, looks like we're, we're doing very well. As the president said, he's fought a great campaign. He did not say it, there's been a lot of ballot stuffing. So mm. I think it, it's, it's going to be more difficult for Mr. Trump than, uh, than perhaps we think. Ross, tens of millions of Americans uh, voted for Trump despite everything he's done wrong over the last four years. There's a very, very uh, long list. Do these results prove uh, in your mind that he would have walked it without COVID or that actually his massive failure on the pandemic didn't matter that much? The question you have to ask yourself is whether all Americans perceive it as a failure on his part. And I think the answer is no. There is a growing fatalism, which Trump has nurtured because it suits him and the herd immunity theory has a simplistic appeal, what my colleague Nick Barr calls pub economics, that people find easy to understand. Ask yourself as well, could the US have locked down in the same way for as long as we did or France did or New Zealand did? And I think the answer is no. It's culturally no. Outside the East Coast, it would have been very, very difficult. Bear in mind that the US doesn't have furlough and furlough is what makes lockdown possible, essentially. And I think potential Biden voters ask themselves, what would this elderly white guy have done differently from the elderly white guy we've got already? What's his plan for getting us out of the pandemic? He doesn't have one that we can countenance, that we can live with. And that may have been, that it may have been as a result that the, that COVID wasn't such a deal breaker as we thought it might be. And in 2016, it was widely sort of said that Trump voters, I mean, perhaps the more generous end of things was that Trump voters were protest voters, or they just really didn't like and trust Hillary Clinton. But this time, they know what they're getting. So what does this say uh, about America if half the country is happy with what we've seen in the last four years? Well, it says that there's always a percentage of people. It's an established fact in political science, generally about 25 to 30% who are happy with authoritarian rule. But bear in mind that his supporters don't regard Trump as authoritarian. They actually see him as the opposite of that because they see him as a champion of personal freedom, of things like gun carrying. They ask themselves, is this guy telling me what to do all the time? And the answer is no. Is he The question, is he undermining democratic institutions fatally? That gets you a very different answer. But that's not one that people are asking themselves. And you see that to an extent in Britain as well with prorogation. I mean, I thought prorogation was an absolute outrage. I was appalled by it. But did it cut through? Did Do people nowadays really worry about the fact that Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament? No, I don't think they do. And this lack of interest and, and, and care for democratic institutions is a real problem. And it is something that populists exploit. Minnie, until Tuesday, uh, and of course we are saying he, he is he is at the moment the, the, the clear favourite to win. But until Tuesday, Biden was seen as having run a, a good campaign. He ended it with a high favourability rating. He won the debates. What did you make of him as a candidate? Uh, Look, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a massive Biden fan. Uh, An election contested between two white men in their 70s was never going to be the one for me. (laughs) Um, 
I don't think he performed particularly well during the debates or on the election trail. And I think, you know, if you're not coming out with a clear victory, I'm not even asking for a landslide, just a clear victory during a pandemic that has been seriously mishandled by the president, then you've got a real problem with your candidacy and your leadership. But I think aside from that, I think for me, when you've got a two party system in place, a lot of people like me are left with a terrible choice and a bad choice, uh, neither of which come close to representing my views on the issues that I care about. And I, and I don't know what it's like on the ground in the US, but I imagine that there are a lot of people with my equivalent political leanings who have done what I would have done, which is focus less on the leadership and more on my local representative and, and vote for the person that comes mm. closest to what I believe. And writers on the left in in the UK and US have sort of been making variations on on Bernie would have won, although not not quite generally, apart from with one exception, not actually saying that. It seemed that especially in Florida, in Miami Dade, which is a set which is what cost Biden Florida, the attempt to frame him as a dangerous socialist worked, despite the fact that no socialists actually think of Biden as a socialist, dangerous or otherwise. Do you think that a more left wing candidate would have? whether that be Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, would have fared better if that attack line um, seemed to be working even on someone like Biden? Yeah, I mean, there's no way to know that. Um, But I think it's important to remember that if the candidate was uh, someone who was an out-and-out socialist, the strategy would have changed and they would have gone even harder on the socialists a bad hype. Uh, I'm not sure that announcing yourself as a socialist is the clearest way to win, even if that's what you are. But I... I do understand the frustration of people on the left because I don't think Biden presented a clear vision for the future. You know, he opposed a lot of things. He set out what he didn't want. But for me, he didn't have that principled, clear vision about what he stands for. You know, what was the story around Biden? I think that was what was missing for me. And there are so many issues that people want and need answers on, you know, the the pandemic, the global economy, climate change, race relations. Did we really get those answers from Biden? And, And I'm just all about clarity. I think if you give people something to vote for, it is far more effective and encouraging than if you just consistently say what you don't want. And I think that's the thing that makes a real difference. And I think a socialist candidate would have done that better than Biden did. And going back to, I suppose, what was, you know, what I asked Roz about, well, why, why are we downcast if it looks like Biden's going to win? I suppose if you say that, that Biden was, was mainly running against Trump rather than for his own vision, and the election was therefore a referendum on Trumpism and to see whether 2016 was this sort of freak aberration, on that level, even if Trump's lost, has sort of Trumpism won and proven that it's here, you know, here to stay? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to admit defeat, but I think I'm going to have to. You know, the voters have clearly stuck with him. And I can't see the Republican Party thinking that's a bad thing and changing their tactics anytime soon. So Trumpism is probably here to stay for a while. And and like Roz says, you know, he's tapped into something that, however uncomfortable it is for us to accept, speaks to a lot of American voters And I personally never believed it was a freak win in 2016. You know, I don't like to credit him with being clever because he's obviously not clever. But there are certainly people around him and and supporting him who know what they're doing. Uh, And, you know, the amplification of his positions on various issues and the way they are delivered feels carefully calculated to me. You know, you don't become president of the USA by accident. 
Gavin, obviously, you know American politics very well. Each election creates a different narrative and probably like a, a, an overreaching narrative about what America is now. Remember in 2008, it was like, you know, they've elected Barack Obama. Well, it, this is a new kind of America. But a lot of this kind of culture war sort of resentment goes back quite a long way. I mean, how do you sort of assess? Uh, I mean, is, is it a sort of shock? Do you think something very big has changed or is it just that this stuff was there and it, uh, you know, it sort of had the upper hand uh, for a while? Yeah, I mean, in 1998, I published a book called The United States of Anger. And the, the point of the book, I traveled around those 48 states. And what I found was really surprising because the Washington of D.C. of Clinton uh, you know, everything was going well. The, every metric, it was the one superpower. They talked about a unipolar world, uh, everything from hip hop and Hollywood movies to, uh, you know, the sudden boom in, in tech industries, which produced Google and, and all the other things that we take for Apple and so on. Uh, everything was American. It was growing fantastically. But I couldn't figure out why when I went from state to state, people were so angry and they were angry. That was the, that's why I called it the United States of Anger. And it was, it, a couple of things, but it was it was discontent with the system and the elites, everything which Trump picked up on. And it was also the fact that America in the anecdotal, what people told me about their lives, didn't match up to uh, the America that they read about or saw about how great this was with a booming economy and so on. Because people, one guy summed it up, he was a police officer in Annapolis, Maryland. And he said to me, Bill Clinton says he's created 11 million new jobs. He has, but my family have got five of them. The cop and his wife both worked. And on their days off from the, the main job, they did other jobs just to make ends meet. Now, that was the squeeze middle class and so on. And some of those things have come to Britain too. So it's a very long, uh, uh, Trump is not the cause. He is the effect or the result of this anger, which was certainly absolutely evident in the 1990s. Ros, one of the big surprises um, was a less racially polarized electorate uh, than 2016, with Biden gaining some white voters and Trump doing surprisingly well with Hispanics um, in uh, Florida and in southern Texas. Does this mean that the Democratic coalition is in is in danger, that they just can't sort of um, they can't bank on this sort of demographic advantage that they were that they were hoping for? Yes, it is very problematic for them. And it was always, I think, a mistake to rely or to assume that particular demographic would vote for them. I mean, we've already talked to Cubans, for example. There's evidence that they're very wary of any association with socialism, even though I don't think many people would describe Biden as a socialist in in Britain. But nonetheless, it cuts through one of the most tortuous things you observe on the left is, is the assumption that because we care about racial injustice and because we do that quite performatively, we ought to be rewarded for it. On the contrary, many people find that quite patronising. And we should never take for granted that we can rely on anybody's votes because we care about, their, uh, about them and, and, and about the particular troubles that they have. Minnie, even though the US and UK are uh, very different countries, a clean Biden win would have been encouraging news, I think, for Keir Starmer. But if this shows that the right can win conservative people of colour, 
and sort of break that that kind of more left wing coalition and succeed with kind of like ridiculous really anti woke scaremongering even if the uh you know even if the candidate isn't particularly left wing is that is that ominous for labor is is there anything that you would kind of read across from the states yeah i am really worried about it i can see the exact same thing playing out here in the uk and and to some extent it is already happening you know the problem is as you say the the us and the uk are very different countries but the problem is that the right in the UK learn from success in the US. So Labour has to learn from the failures in the US. And I, I'm not sure that that will happen. And if Keir Starmer's Labour don't really start thinking about what it is that they stand for and explain to people what they will be getting when they vote for them, the next four years are going to go very badly. They're going to have to put in more effort with the groups that could be changeable, that could switch you know, I certainly don't know what I'd be getting at this point in time if I was going to vote for them and the clock is ticking. And on top of that, you can already see that some of the narratives from the US will be directly transferred to the UK. And some of that has already started. You know, Nigel Farage was on TV this morning saying that voter fraud is rife in the UK, which isn't true at all. There was no pushback from Andrew Neil. And there has to be some strategy from Labour for approaching misinformation Mm. and scaremongering. And I'm not not sure that that's happening at the moment so that needs to begin quite quickly and in the short term um if biden wins will do you what effects do you think that will have on um the eu and prospects of a, of a no deal brexit is there something to um is there something to look forward to on that front Yeah, I think a Biden win will make a no deal Brexit less likely. You know, Biden opposed Brexit and he would have very different priorities if he became president. You know, he values relationships with the EU and he would probably do a lot more work to rebuild the relationships that Trump has damaged. You know, Brexit in a lot of ways was built on the government's ability to land an agreement with the US. And I that mending EU relationships would be his priority over a trade deal with the UK and it would delay that considerably, making a a no-deal Brexit less likely. Finally, I mean, that's one bit of good news. I was relieved to see, given some of the the pre-election hype, uh, no widespread violence at the polls, no riots, no armed militias. But that does feel like a, a low bar for an election in an advanced democracy. <laughs> Apart from that, uh, I just wanted to ask if anybody had something, you know, that, that sort of cheered them cheered them up on, on election night, you know, a particular result or a proposition that passed or somebody who got elected. Was, was there something to kind of uh, to cheer you up? I was pleased about the media and the role that they played in general. Um, I think there's uh, Trump's Trump's speech today has been greeted with quite a lot of cynicism because it was widely expected among journalists that this is what he would try to do to claim victory and to try and stop the count, and they were ready for that, and they were ready not to swallow it. Now, I mean, I I just went to foxnews.com and had a look at their coverage, and it really is remarkably neutral. There is not the kind of pushing the Trump agenda that you would expect on their on their um, website at any rate. And that has got to be a good thing. Yeah, I was pleased to see that AOC and the sisterhood get re-elected. You know, I, I'm not sure they were ever in any real danger, but it definitely gave me something to smile about this morning. And I was pleased about Arizona and the, the McCain family who have been quite clear that uh, 
that Donald Trump isn't their kind of Republican. I know a lot of people in Arizona, I've got a lot of friends there, and I'm very, very pleased to see that they, as a state, did what I think is the right thing. So it's time for our new feature, Underrated Overrated, where each week we pick our political sacred cows and dead ducks. Gavin Esler's category is COVID-19 responders. So who's overrated and who's underrated? Uh, Okay, I think underrated are mathematicians, uh, number crunchers, people who do statistics, look at probabilities. I was talking to Dr. Hannah Fry recently, who is not just a great mathematician, but she's also a great communicator about mathematics, which in itself can be quite tricky. And she was one of those who a couple of years ago did a, a BBC radio program, I think it was called Contagion, but basically said, at some point, there'll be a really serious pandemic, and we should do something about it, and we should at least think about it. And so when she says, as she said to me in the conversation recently, you know, it's going to happen again, it might not be called COVID or COVID-2, but we've had SARS and MERS and so on, it will happen again, I take it seriously. And I think mathematicians have been underrated in their contribution to our understanding of this. Overrated, some business people, I say some, because most business people are great at their businesses, and that's why they survive. And I've got lots of friends in business. Um, That's great. But the business people who go on and on as if there's some kind of zero-sum game between having a sound economy and actually not killing people, just drive me up the wall. You can name them yourselves. But, you know, uh, if you run a pub chain, uh, you probably know how to run a pub chain. You know a lot about pub chain. Do you know about virology? Not so (laughs) clear about that. And it's false to to pretend otherwise. So they are definitely, definitely overrated. I'd rather talk to some bloke in the pub about virology than listen to some business people telling me that there is, it's all, there's nothing, nothing to worry about. We should just open it all up and somehow magically herd immunity will arrive despite the fact we haven't got a vaccine. Well, as, as a preview of our next segment, uh, certain pub chain owners also have very strong opinions on Brexit. Are they in some way related? (laughs) Inspired by Oh God, What Now's whiz-bang relaunch, Nigel Farage is rebranding the Brexit party. His right-wing Reform UK promises to give a political voice to those of an anti-lockdown persuasion. The people that used to care about old people but not the economic effects of Brexit have now decided that the economy is far more important than old people after all. It's happening just as we go into the second lockdown that Boris Johnson swore would never happen. Roz, why is there so much crossover between Brexit fandom and lockdown bashing? Well, to a certain extent, it's a libertarian mentality, but it actually goes further than that. And that is exactly the thing that Farage wants to take advantage of. Uh, what you see in Farage is very much in the tradition of someone called Pierre Poujard. And in 1954, he he formed this kind of populist right-wing movement party, whatever, uh, which was uh, basically to represent the interests of small shopkeepers and artisans, and he was anti the tax system and so on. And that's very much Farage's Farage's shtick. He, He will want to pick up on people whose businesses have been badly affected by the pandemic and who have not perhaps been able to been eligible for furlough uh, programs, have feel that they've been overlooked and have a strong grievance about the way that lockdown has been done. 
Um, Tory MP Bim Afalami said that Nigel's just bored of drumming up support for Trump and needs to do something. Don't don't we all? Um, but we underestimate Farage at, at our peril. Do you think this party has real potential to to influence politics in the way that his previous vehicles have? Yeah, it does. I mean, just because it's not going to succeed at the ballot box does not mean it does not have huge potential to influence things, as we have seen repeatedly over and over again with Farage's previous uh, ventures. He's no good at getting elected to Parliament, but nonetheless, he still manages to change the entire course of the country's direction and history. I mean, part of the purpose of the party, I think, is to distract from Brexit in the new year when people begin to feel the shock of what leaving the EU really means. But at the same time, he's on a bit of a win-win in terms of lockdown. If the lockdown fails to control the virus and brings the R down again, he can claim that lockdown was pointless. If it does, he can claim that it wasn't needed. So he knows that perfectly well. And that is what he will be trying to exploit. And I mean, it's been pitched. It's very much about about lockdown, which feels a bit like launching a magazine in 1996 called Britpop Forever. (laughs) So what will become of Reform UK if we get a vaccine or get the virus under control in some other way? I mean, we know that we know that that Nigel is often rather policy light. Um, But but what what would keep the ball in the air? Well, I, I don't think we know we know yet. I mean, that's why it's called reform. I mean, what does reform mean? It means whatever you, well, you want it to mean, basically. Uh, everyone wants to reform stuff. It's it's a great thing, isn't it? And so I think uh, he, he, we will wait and see what policies uh, Farage finds expedient next year, and what he, it's it's it, the show. The show has not yet been revealed. For the moment, it's an anti-lockdown party. Once lockdown ends, and if we get a vaccine, it will be something else. And that's the beauty of of the title of the party. It wouldn't be any good if they just called it the anti-lockdown party, because then he would have to change the name of his party even more often. I think he should just change the name every year, just whatever's... Well, he basically does that, doesn't it? It's been been UKIP, it's been Brexit party, and now it's reform. It's fundamentally the same party. Gavin, while, while not an ardent fan of Farage... Uh, you've described him as a good communicator and more honest than other pro-Brexit politicians. What do you think his skills are that enable him to sort of keep, you know, hogging media attention and political influence? Well, he's a he's a brilliant salesman, uh, absolutely superb salesman. So he describes things in ways that connect with people. Just to give you one obvious example, which I suspect we've we've kind of forgotten in some ways. Do you remember he he charged people, I think it was £25 a head, it might have been £50 a head, for the pleasure of walking on a public road from Sunderland to London. And some people actually paid the money, started off walking, and then it rained a bit, so he got in a car and uh, was driven to London. Now, that is a kind of genius, and that you (laughs) underestimate at your peril. Uh, If I could sell, sell people the the right to walk along the public road i would be able to um yeah have a have a very very uh, expensive uh, lifestyle so he's relatable i think it's true that in terms of reform uk that's a that that's actually quite a good name because we know there's something rotten in the uk and why is the farage ph- phenomenon so what could have what could have changed it well what the one thing that strikes me is that When he got 3.8 million votes for UKIP in the 2015 general election, they got one seat, which was um, Douglas Carswell, who then uh, decided he didn't want to work with Farage anymore. So they got no seats. So 3.8 million voters were quite right to be angry. And there's a lot 
although I disagree with them on most things, I think the question of Reform UK is something that we should think about. And my personal view is that he is positioning himself to make hay whatever happens with Brexit. Because if there is some kind of no deal Brexit is very bad, he'll be able to say, look, look how terribly badly the Boris Johnson's government has run the economy by the lockdown and so on. That's what's made it so so bad. And if, as I suspect, there will be a rather kind of thin, shabby, pointless Brexit with, with some kind of deal with the EU, he will cry betrayal. And those 38 MPs who voted against uh, the lockdown measures in, in Parliament today, those Tories, will be a a focus of further discontent. So I think he's on to something, frankly. He's, he's Britain's most successful backseat driver, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it like that. <laughs> turn left. No, no, turn right. No, turn right. right again. Right. Um, and Reform UK has endorsed the Great Barrington recommendation, one of my favourite recommendations, which calls for focus protection of the vulnerable. Lockdown sceptics are currently a small minority of the electorate. And this is a pretty kind of niche uh, policy. But is, I mean, is that all he needs to cause trouble? I think we, you know, we sometimes use that kind of Nixonian phrase, the silent majority, but does, does he actually just need a noisy minority? Well, he's, he's, he's got uh, plenty of noise. He gets possibly slightly less airtime now than before. Uh, I'm not sure most people actually know what the great, Barrington declaration is they just know it's uh, it's Nigel Farage but I don't think I really do not think he's a busted flush uh, and I do think he is trying to reinvent himself for 2021 when there may very well be a major crisis on the right of British politics anyway because Boris Johnson is uh, well he is damaged goods within the Conservative Party so he's got an opportunity and he's very very good at taking it. Many last week, 90 Tory MPs called for a COVID equivalent of the European Research Group to propose a plan B for the pandemic, along with reform. Does this threaten to create, do you think, a serious anti-lockdown movement or failing that, at least in the short term, a kind of lack of compliance from the public? Because lockdowns don't work unless people really feel like um, they're, they're willing to participate. I mean, anytime Nigel Farage is involved in something, I, I do worry about it. <laughs> but saying that, I, I think that non-compliance with the lockdown restrictions was way more likely and, and was happening when the tier system meant differing rules across the country. You know, people just weren't able to take that seriously when the rules were kind of careless and chaotic and there was no public understanding of how bad things were. I think there will be more compliance in tier four just because Obviously, there are less things for people to do. There's less temptation. And it's obvious that the death rates are increasing and the situation is more desperate. I think people will find it hard, but overall, they'll stick to it. You know, that's the whole point of going into a harder lockdown. So I don't think that an anti-lockdown movement is something that we necessarily need to worry about. You know, I don't think they'll be successful in that. But I am concerned about the usual suspects rebranding themselves again as a movement for the people and of the people, because that is exactly how they managed to draw support for a whole range of irrational things. You know, this is just the latest front for their agenda. They'll say whatever they want to win and get there. And, and that's a real concern. Well, a lot's happened since the weekend. I feel very old and tired. Um, 
But we should talk about that new lockdown. Um, Sage wanted a new lockdown in, in late September. Starmer called for a circuit breaker, which is not what this is. That would have been more focused. Three weeks ago, three weeks being the same fatal delay that occurred in March. Why do you think the government waited this long? Because uh, they kind of say like, oh, well, we're waiting for things to get really bad, essentially. <laughs> and it was like, what if you could see that things were going to get bad and, and, and then did it in advance? I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not an epidemiologist. Wh- why do you think that, that they didn't act sooner on this second time around? Well, I think they were wary of appearing to give more concessions to Labour. You know, that's been a bit of a trend. That's why they haven't backed down on obvious things like free school meals. But to me, it reads like they knew a lockdown was necessary, but if they did it too early, they could jeopardise Christmas. So you have to remember that aside from the public wanting to spend Christmas with their families, a lot of businesses in retail and hospitality make most of their profits at Christmas. So wanting things to be back open and functioning for the month of December makes a kind of warp sense if your priority is the economy but the kind of priority where you as a government don't want to spend any money and getting the virus under control is secondary to that so either we locked down earlier came out of it and risked cases being on the rise again by christmas so needing further action or we locked down earlier and for longer to ensure that christmas had limited restrictions which they they obviously don't want to do because uh you know a longer lockdown is worse for the uh, for the government and worse for the public. So there is a kind of twisted rationale there, I think, but I think it's about their priorities being in the wrong order. And many of us learned about this second lockdown via a leak to the Times on Friday evening. Then we got the details from Robert Peston's Twitter account while the press conference got pushed back two and a half hours on Saturday. Is the government... I mean, there was a claim that actually they didn't want that leak to the Times and there's going to be an inquiry into that. God knows what, 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 you know, where Peston was getting his information from. Do you think the government is actively trying to communicate through sort of leaks, through sort of testing the water, or is it just incompetent? Uh, I, I think it's both. I don't think they're mutually exclusive things. <laughs> I think that the leaks are clearly part of a strategy to put everyone who might oppose the measures or ask for more on the back foot. You know, you've certainly got politicians in the north or, you know, even in Scotland who you don't want to give the time to prepare a clear response. And if the public already thinks something is happening by a leak, it's much harder to flip the story and, and to get concessions or changes. And they really don't care about this procedurally. I, I think Speaker Lindsay Hoyle has raised this several times in the Commons and hasn't exactly managed to get an apology out of the Cabinet. But in in terms of incompetence, of course they're incompetent. If they weren't incompetent, they wouldn't have to leak things to ensure that they're one step ahead. (laughs) I I think the goal is to be purely governed by Robert Peston's Twitter account. (laughs) And and that Keir Starmer will have to run against Robert Peston's Twitter account in 2024. (laughs) Ros, finally, talking of trust issues, the head of Britain's vaccine task force is Kate Bingham, a venture capitalist married to Tory minister Jesse Norman. It was reported in The Guardian that she showed sensitive documents to American women in private equity during a webinar. What a lovely word, webinar is. Um, Labour's call for an inquiry into possible conflicts of interest. After Dido Harding, do you have to be married to a Tory MP to get a top job <laughs> in the fight against COVID? Or, or you know, can, can, you, can, you do, can you get the job without it? Well, you can certainly get the job without it if, for example, you've worked with Michael Gove in the past. That is also an advantage, as we know. There is a number of people, ex-colleagues of his who have picked up contracts as a result. 
that this is what happens when you have an excuse to rush through contracts, which is a perfectly legitimate excuse because you need to do this stuff fast in a pandemic, but you accompany that with a total lack of transparency. And then you close down Parliament for a while so that Parliament can't scrutinise what's been going on as well. And that's what's enabled this cronyism. It's basically a refusal to be open about what you're doing, even when it wouldn't cost you that much to do it. I mean, cronyism is is obviously bad uh, in its own right, but um, public trust in vaccines is higher in the UK than in a lot of countries. Do you think this kind of thing could be ammunition for the, the big pharma conspiracy theorists, the Ian Browns of the world? Yeah, it could absolutely, because, you know, there's, there's the QAnon mindset is you can fit almost anything into it. I mean, you've probably seen the diagrams of the QAnon conspiracy and all the different elements of it that fit in from George Soros to Obama to it, 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 it just anything can be fitted in to that. And of course, when you've got a financial interest, then that's clear evidence in many people's minds of a conspiracy uh, a conspiracy theory. And, and yes, I think it is dangerous to, particularly with vaccines, to do this. We've almost reached the end of the show, which means it's time for But Your Emails, a new segment where we take advantage of this up-and-coming mode of communication, which allows you to talk directly to us via cyberspace. This week, we have two refreshingly un-American questions. The first is from Nick Gendler, or Gendler. Given that there looks now to be a majority of Scots in favour of independence, what level of sympathy would the membership committee of the EU have for an application to join from an independent Scotland? It's of particular interest because my mum was born north of the border and it's my only hope. Gavin, do you want to take this one? Yes, well, I, I was born in Glasgow, uh, so I have a, an interest. Now, uh, my new book is going to be called How Britain Ends and uh, it is on precisely this theme. And what has changed? So much has changed since... Uh, 2014 and the last referendum. And one of the things that's changed is uh, the the famous vow. I don't know if you remember it, but the three political leaders of the three Westminster political parties, Tories, Labour and Lib Dems, went north of the border and they they said that, you know, you've got to stay and we'll change things. And also the implication was if you if you break away, you will not be in the EU just couldn't happen and the Spanish will veto it because they're worried about their own separatists in Catalonia and elsewhere and so on. And uh, I, t- I talked to, well, one of, the, one, of, one of the great quotes about that that came afterwards when, uh, of course, we were on the course to Brexit, meaning we're going to leave the EU anyway, was uh, the Glaswegian who told a focus group, Labour, the Lib Dems and the Tories, three colours of the same shite. So... Uh, we have a very changed attitude in Scotland, and I think we've got a changed attitude in the EU. The Copenhagen criteria for joining the EU are uh, democracy, functioning market economy, and that you can take on EU laws. Now, Scotland would pass all three of those. There are advocates for it within the, you know, the Irish government would be delighted. Macron, uh, I'm told, is somebody who would nod very favourably towards it. Donald Tusk ex-Euro Council president, said, empathy for Scotland. I felt like I'm Scottish, especially after Brexit. Barnier said, we will see, which is for Barnier almost uh, almost an endorsement because he doesn't say very much. Even the Latvian foreign minister has said uh, it is possible. So I think 
things have changed. And they have changed because it's very different for a, a state which is not, or part of a state, which is not within the EU to wish to join, as opposed to the supposed breakaway that Scotland would have been had the referendum gone a different way in 2014. And Hugh Penny asks, how do you go about persuading people who are sceptical about the level of lockdown that's being imposed, saying that the health effects of COVID are being overstated as well as the numbers of deaths? I'm not talking about the COVID is all made up crowd, they're probably unreachable, but someone who is genuinely sceptical about the risk versus the damage to the economy and also the powers the government has grabbed. Roz, you are not a, a lockdown sceptic. You do not think COVID is all made up. You are the editor of LSE's COVID-19 blog. That would be that would be uh, unfortunate. But uh, this is this is your wheelhouse. Uh, how would you how would you make that argument to the to the the, the soft sceptics? We're all struggling with this pandemic and we're struggling with the information that we're given by the government about the state of how things are going. And we do that by looking at numbers of deaths, numbers of hospitalizations, numbers of cases. And that is the lens through which the government has encouraged us to see the effectiveness of lockdown or otherwise and the pandemic itself. And we should be aware that that is just one frame in terms of looking at the consequences of the way we deal with the pandemic. And it's an easy frame to grasp but it's not the only thing that's going on. And there is a big cognitive dissonance, really, when you care very much about the deaths of people, regardless of their age and their state of health, but you don't necessarily care about their quality of life, as we have seen, for example, in old people's homes, people who can't be visited, people who are getting worse, people who are dying earlier because of what they are going through. And I would say that to try and counter that, we have to do a couple of things. We have to show we care about the social fabric of this country. And I think the government is kind of trying to do that a little bit. It's trying to do that in keeping kids in schools. It's trying to do that in a kind of hasty update to the lockdown rules this week, where it was pointed out to people that if you were a mother or a father, indeed, with with a small baby, you couldn't go out and meet anybody else because it could only be one person meeting another person outside. And people pointed out that that was wrong and it was changed. We have to allow debate about what lockdown does, about its consequences. And that's really hard because many of them are completely invisible to us. And we have to not shame people who question it and who want to raise those issues. And occasionally that happens. And there's this feeling of, oh, lockdown, if you question the lockdown, you're not behind it. And for me, for example, you know, I'm not anti-lockdown, but I do very much want to get to the heart of what lockdown does to people and the impact it has, which can be very, very great. And as I say, is invisible. There's a parallel, really, with austerity. We don't see the results of public policies often until years and years after they're enacted. And we know that Tens of thousands of people have died as an indirect result of austerity policies. But at the time, that was not discussed. And we don't want to make that mistake again. One of the things we could do, for example, is is have a set of principles that inform COVID policy and that last for a year, say, as as a couple of my colleagues are suggesting, Nick Stern and somebody else, who that can give us a steer and can give us a feeling that we are moving through the pandemic with certain values 
intact. Thanks, Roz. Uh, and that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Roz Taylor. Thank you. Minnie Rahman. Thanks. And our guest, Gavin Esler. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster, 2020 repolished version by Corner Shop and the traditional salute to our Patreon backers. Hello and thank you from me to Charlie Burnett, Rob Owens and Oddbins. Yes, Oddbins. Thanks for your support to Lawrence Hove, Henry Stanton and James Le Gallet. And finally, thanks for me to Louisa Egan, Michael Stafford and Dominic O'Connor. Take care of yourselves in this nerve-grinding week and we'll see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Minnie Rahman and Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.